Hi, you're listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life with me, your host, Mimi Novik. I'm so happy and thrilled to have you here with me. I have created this series for all of us so we can change our world together and live a more holistic and balanced life. Together, we will share lots of inspiring stories from all walks of life, speak with leading experts, enjoy healthy living ideas, explore music and subjects that inspire each other to always have hope. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Secrets for an Inspirational Life. How are you all today? I hope that you are well and peaceful and a little bit joyful in these times. And today we are having a lot of rain. Well, actually, where I am in the United Kingdom, so it's not so sunny but we have to keep positive because change is always on the horizon in life. And one of the secrets, I think, to momentary happiness is that we have to embrace change, however difficult that is at times. Because, you know, the human spirit is much stronger than we could ever imagine. Sometimes I know that we all wonder if we will ever endure what life throws at us. But you know what? We really can. And sometimes even to live, as they say, is an act of courage. So we can't lose faith. We can't lose hope ever. And we must remind ourselves that there is nothing out there greater than us and the capacity of our soul. Now, I have some really, truly wonderful and amazing guests. I'm very, very honored and very, very privileged, really, for them to come on and share their stories because it's a time out of their life, a time out of my life, and also a time out of your life, a moment that we can share together and hopefully inspire each other in some way. But today, especially, I have really, I have not heard a story like this maybe twice in my lifetime so far. And I am really honored to have this exceptionally inspirational, brave and courageous and extraordinary lady. I could go on and on with, you know, such positive things to say about her. And today is my honor to welcome Natalie Kayrosh. Natalie is the survivor of one of the most appallingly brutal attacks that you could ever imagine. She was stabbed two dozen times by her partner when she was eight months pregnant with his baby. And I know this sounds gruesome, and it is, 
But the point of this is, is that she has rebuilt her life and is inspiring people, the length, the breadth of the country and internationally with her huge courage and her refusal to bow down to this trauma that she has experienced in her life that changed her life 360 degrees. Alongside a successful full-time career, she has since become a motivational speaker and also an author and an activist, which she's going to tell you more about. Her story is a tremendous reminder to all of us that life can always be pieced back together somehow. No matter how badly we suffer, no matter what happens to us, we can do it. We just have to have that faith and the courage to do it and, you know, not to give up on life. So her story that she's going to share with us today is going to inspire everyone who has ever faced any type of adversity or trauma or tragedy. And in fact, anyone, really, it would inspire anyone that hears this story because she has risen and she has stood tall. And I am honoured that she has chosen today to be my guest and to share her incredulous story. Welcome, Natalie. Hello. Lovely Hello. to speak to you. I'm sort of sitting there going, wow, thank you for that as an introduction. <laughs> Is that me, really? I'm also looking around thinking, am I on the right podcast now? <laughs> yes, it is you. It is you. And I, I have to say that I am really blessed by your presence because I, you know, when I first heard your story, Natalie, and we've spoken, you know, before, I, you have left such, you know, an imprint on my heart with this because what you have gone through and what you have become, more to the point, is extraordinary. And I'd like you to sort of, I don't know, you know where best to begin. All right, well, bless you for that. Um, mm. Yeah, well, my story, if we take you, I suppose if we take everyone back to the beginning of 2016. So we go back just over four years ago. And life was in a really happy place. I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, had done for many, many years. Not long after university, I went into that industry. Um, I was a biology graduate and that's just the typical track that most scientists take. They either stay in a lab or they teach or they go into the pharmaceutical industry. And I chose the pharmaceutical industry because I was wowed by the nice car and the nice salary. And mm. um, so I spent many years doing that and all sorts of roles and some great companies to big pharmaceutical companies in that time that I stayed with for all those years. And um, I had been married before. Um, I was now at this point, beginning of 2016, I was 39 years of age with two children who were 10 and six. And they were with my previous husband, who was a good man. We're still very good friends to this day. We've always maintained a good relationship. We just marriage didn't work out. 
Um, but I was then living in 2016 with my partner, Bobby, who I'd known right back from my school days. So we used to, at the age of 15, I went to a girls' grammar school and he went to the old boys' grammar school. And you can imagine a girls' grammar school and a boys' grammar school mixing together. There were lots of people going on dates and I used to date one of his friends. So we became friends very, very early on and weirdly, friends from my school um, ended up marrying his friends. So this wider circle had always sort of ensued right the way through university and beyond. Um, but Bobby and I had lost touch for many, many years. And it, it was, I think, 2014. Um, we got together and went on a date. Well, first of all, it was just a drink and a catch up. We'd spoken on Facebook and that then went into a relationship, um, but Bobby had got no children. And so despite the fact that I was later thirties, two children already, two beautiful girls and a good career, he begged for us to have a child. And um, I agreed, I thought, okay, let's do it. Better do it fairly soon because our age was advancing. He was the year above me um, at school. So he was a year older. And so there we um, found ourselves pregnant at um, the end of 2015 and as we entered 2016 the baby was due at the end of March um, so life was all very happy very good he was ecstatic to become a father and the world completely changed and it's funny you, you talk about sort of you know how much our, our lives change and the thing is is we, we never expect to be that news story we sort of see these news stories occasionally mm -hmm. and and it's this horrific act and you're like, gosh, that's just terrible. And, you know, people who's went out one morning, whose life completely changed through one incident or another. I mean, never, ever think it could possibly be us. And that was me. So Friday, March the 4th, 2016, I woke up and it was a normal day. Bobby woke up next to me and cuddling a kiss and he went off to push him off because he got a bit of a twinkle in his eyes I always describe and I was like no way um it's gotta get to work and pushed him off to work and he sort of left the house saying goodbye I love you and saying goodbye to my two other daughters and um and it's weird because I look back at that moment now never knowing that was going to be the final time he was ever going to leave the house that was the final time I was ever going to see him in the context that I'd known him for 25 years as a kind and loving man and that actually that man was going to change or that man was going to come out as his true self mm. later that day. Um, so I took the girls to school. I watched their assembly. I'd got a day off work. So I went to the gym, even though I was eight months pregnant at this point, but I'm still keeping fit. I went to the supermarket. It was a really mundane day you can imagine you know, just doing household chores spoke to bobby numerous times even about what we were going to have for dinner and that's always stuck with me that i'll never forget that we we're going to have salmon for dinner which is a really bizarre fact to remember but because mm. it was such a normal day and he asked about going to the bank that afternoon we had some money to sort out and he said would i go to the bank with him and he he insisted that he would pick me up and i kept saying no i was more than happy to walk he was not to be daft and because i thought don't want to divert from your work to home and then go to certain coalfield town center to the bank you know i'd walk down and he kept insisting no he'd pick me up he'd pick me up and and i even sort of said well if you're not here you know i'll walk and he went well if you do walk which way would you go and weirdly it was a 
even at the time it sort of struck me as an odd question and I he asked that of you where would you go yeah he asked me which mm. way I'd walk and I, I, I thought it was an odd question at the time I, I sort of went and I, I think I even I did even laugh at the time and said well, what are you a stalker you know and he's like no no you know just want to know which way you're going to go so I told him the route you know my usual route down I said, well, mm. the, norm, the normal way and I sort of explained you know in down past the hospital and over a place called Trinity Hill I said you know put down Trinity Hill to the center but he said, no, 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 I'm going to collect you anyway. So you just wait there. Now, I'm quite a stubborn character. Um, my surname comes from Portugal. I'm half Portuguese. Uh, my dad's Portuguese. And I've got a very strong Latino temperament. And I'm quite strong-willed when I want to be. <laughs> and um, I was kind of like, well, if he doesn't get here when he says, I'm leaving anyway. And I'm going to walk. And he can just pick me up on the way. Mm. Um and he didn't arrive, so I left the house and I phoned him as I walked out the house. I phoned him and to tell him that I'd started walking and obviously he could pick me up en route if he was nearby. But um, he told me he was stuck in traffic, he was on the other side of Birmingham. He was really apologetic that he was running late and asked me if I was okay. And I said, no, I'm fine, but I, I'm walking down now and I'll do just some shopping. I'd got some things to buy. A friend of mine was getting married, a close friend of mine. And uh, I needed to get her, I wanted to get a card and things. And um, I said, just call me when you get to the centre, which he said he would. And he branded off the call with, I love you. And I, I love you too. So at this point, I'm still in a happy bubble. I'm still thinking everything's good. I'm walking to Sutton Coalfield Town Centre. And for people who don't know, Sutton Coalfield, um, although outside a major city like Birmingham, it is a mm. nice suburban area. And um, so I'm there walking down. I near the town centre, I approached this place, Trinity Hill. Uh, I told Bobby that I'd been walking down. And it's um, a wide tree-lined alleyway, which goes down behind a church, which stands at the very top of Sun Town Centre. So literally, when you're at the top of Trinity Hill, you look down and you can see the town centre ahead of you. I mean, I could literally see McDonald's, I could see the bus stops, I could see the shops ahead. So I start down this it's quite a steep hill um start down there and I'm about halfway down the tree-lined alleyway which then opens out to this dead end road and I heard these footsteps running behind me and and I think you know maybe being a woman we're sometimes a, a little more aware of this kind of thing you know we, yeah. we are in an alleyway at the end of the day you know I'm eight months pregnant I've got a good sized bump and so I glance over my shoulder and I see a man very scruffily dressed with his head down he's got a hooded top quite a bulky guy and um, hoodie top was the hood was pulled right up so I couldn't see his face and it's right over his face almost and his head is down and he's coming at quite a pace now a sixth sense which I can't even describe why I thought he's coming for me now he could have been running for the town center you know he's mm. late but I sped up because there was something telling me I felt in danger from this person so I sped up and I thought if I could get to the dead end road, which was just ahead of me, then there was a man walking up the hill the other direction and there was some parked cars at the side of the road. Mm. I thought, well, people around, I'll, I'll, be, you know, I'll be safe. And I did get to that point and then, then my heart was racing because I realised that the attacker was then behind me because this man who'd been running down the alleyway it was literally, you know, you can sense somebody walking really close, yeah. too close. It, it's that, you know, in your personal space. 
So I took a deep breath and stepped to one side. I stepped to the left to make it very clear I wanted him to come past me on my right side. And as I did that, he jumped on me from behind and grabbed me and pulled me backwards into him. Um, and at that point, all I can say is your head starts spinning because you can't quite believe that it can be happening to you. You know, you, you hear of people getting mugged and jumped upon and you... Mm. As much as you fear it, you never think it's really going to actually be yourself. And so I'm screaming and shouting for him to get off me. I'm convinced he's going for my handbag, which is on my right-hand side, which is the side that he was going to come past. I thought I look a vulnerable female on my own. Um, and there I am trying to struggle to get him off me. He's pinned me right into his body. He's got his arm over my shoulder. He's pulled me right in tight against him. And I'm trying to break free, almost wriggling my handbag off. And then all of a sudden mm. I noticed that he's pulled a 12-inch kitchen carving knife. Um, oh and I just I just saw the blade and I thought, hang on a minute, you don't need to, you know, anything. And I was like, you don't need to use that. You know, it's like, if you want my bag, mm. take the bag. Um, and life sort of then just went into some surreal moment because within a split second, he brought that knife straight down into my chest and oh the my utter God. horror, the pain, the disbelief. Um, I was in so much denial. I always say that um, he became, he was, he was very quick with the stabbing to start with into my chest. And, but I was in such was denial. Was this from behind, Natalie? What, did you still not see his face? I still couldn't see. So he, if you can picture, um, if somebody, mm. if you were pulled backwards into someone, so your back is in their stomach, mm. okay? Right. So okay. he is over my right shoulder, in effect. So his, his left arm is over me, pinning me to him. His right arm has the knife. So all okay. I can see is this knife and the side of his head, but he's got this hood pulled so far. I so can't you can't see, see who it is? No, I can't see mm. his face. And to be honest, the blade at the top, you know, I was so like, oh my God, just seeing this blade. Um, mm. And I, 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 this surreal moment of sort of, I actually looked, I, I was described like, I looked down at my own chest because the only way I could comprehend I was really being stabbed, and I could feel it. I could feel this horrific pain and I knew that I was being stabbed. But until I saw my own top being ripped and I could actually see that I was bleeding, Mm. Then it sunk in. And I remember, you know, I don't want to swear on your podcast, but I remember thinking, what the F? You know, this, this is not <laughs> But I did, I was like, fucking hell, this, this does mm. not happen in my life. You know, you're thinking, well, how, mm. how is this happening? Because this, this isn't my world. It's stupid to say nowadays, this isn't my world. But back then, I remember thinking, this isn't my world. You know, this, this doesn't happen. <laughs> I don't, why am I being stabbed? Yeah. Um, I'm a 40-year-old woman who's eight months pregnant, who's led this fairly nice life. I don't think I've upset anybody particular. You know, I don't understand. And um, is that what was going through your mind at the time? I was trying to reason in my head what I'd done. What could I have possibly while done? While he was stabbing you. While yeah. he was stabbing yeah. you. Mm. And so I'm screaming for help because I cannot break free. And the guy that had been walking up the hill that I'd spotted, um, mm. I'm screaming to him for him to come and help me. And God bless, he did. Um, now, Johnny, who is the guy walking up the hill, who I'm now friends with, Johnny said he was walking home from work and was cutting up this hill back towards where his house is. Mm. He got his headphones in, he glanced up, he saw the attacker jump on me 
And he thought at first we were mates messing about. He said, and then I saw your face. He said, I will never forget your face. And he said, it was contorted with fear because I've never seen anyone's face like yours went. And then I saw the knife and I realized how serious the situation it was. And he, and he had many choices, you know, he, as I think, you know, as a passerby in that situation, mm. you know, do you run? Do you shout for help? Do you call the police? Do you run to actually intervene physically? You know, it's it's very, very tough decision that you're trying to... It's a very tough decision, isn't it? Yeah, and in seconds you feel you're trying to make this decision. Now, he mm. made the decision, and God bless him, and I don't believe that everybody would. He always says, oh, everybody would have done the same. I'm like, no, they wouldn't. Um, he made the decision to come running to my help. Um, and what we, I didn't know is behind the attacker um, was another man who was walking down the hill the same way into Sutton. Now he heard the screams. He saw mm. this hooded man grab somebody, but he didn't, he couldn't see me because I was quite a lot smaller, physically smaller. And, mm. um, but he said he saw this knife coming down and he heard a scream. Now he, this man is, Name's Tony, and Tony is was in his early sixties. I hope he doesn't mind me sharing. So publicly, his age it was recorded at the time. But Tony, at sixty-two years of age, walking into Sutton, takes the very, very brave decision to jump on the attacker's back. So my he goodness, running down the hill, jumps on his back. This man's wielding a twelve-inch carving knife and using it. Um, incredibly, incredibly brave. Incredibly brave. So. Tony and Johnny are now trying to grapple with this attacker and we all fall down onto the pavement because obviously he's jumped down him to pull him down. But the attacker pulls me down because he's got me pinned to him. Mm. So that was the point that I realised because the stabbing is continuing. It's not stopping at all. Um, and he's not saying anything. The attacker And he's not, not saying anything. anything. He's nope. not talking. No, nope. not speaking at all. Nothing. And... That point I realized that it was me who was the target because although these two men were trying to grapple with him, he wasn't stabbing them, he was stabbing me. And I thought I just had the thought in my head, but Tony said to me when I first ever met him, he said, no, you were shouting it out loud. And I was actually screaming, why me? What have I done to you? What have I done? Please stop, why me? Because I, I was clearly still trying to process what had I done to mm. somebody um and it's funny isn't it because it's actually i've never thought about it until you and i are speaking now but um it, it it's that mental state that we feel that if something's bad done to us mm. that it might be by some way our fault and you know because i'm actually asking what have i done to you as if i'd done something that could possibly um you know have the have made him do that this somebody was stabbed you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah. yeah what you know quite a bizarre mentality really when you think about it that um there am i asking what have i done to you when actually it's like well it doesn't matter what the hell i had done even if i gave you a, a bad look or said mm. something bad i wouldn't be deserved to be being stabbed currently but yeah. um but i'm screaming at him they're struggling with him one tony manages to grab the attacker's arm that's got the knife and holds it back onto the pavement. And at that point, the attacker let go of me to get his hand back. And I suddenly realized I was free. Now, at this point, I'd been stabbed probably 20 times. And this is Oh my chest. God. Yeah, so this is chest, um, multiple in my chest, in my abdomen, 
and through the side of my wrist at this point. And so I'm bleeding heavily and I get up to my feet. God knows how I'm eight months pregnant with all of these injuries, but that's adrenaline for you. I got to my mm. feet. I, I start stumbling down the hill and it's, there I can describe it as like some horrible dream or horror film where I could see everybody ahead. So I could see people in the town center. You know, I can see people at the mm. bus stop. And I'm trying to shout for help and nobody, it's like nobody can hear me because there's a ring road. There is actually, you know, like the ring road around the town centre cuts between the bottom of Trinity Hill and the McDonald's and the bus stops. There's a ring road. So you've got some traffic there. So I felt I'm shouting for help and nobody can hear me. And I can see everybody just going about their normal But were life. you actually shouting or, or were That's were the thing. You... I mean, I, you know, at that yeah. point, I, I might not have even been that loud if you think about yes. it. Um, yeah. And I spot a car park on my left and there's a Baptist church that sits on Trinity Hill. So there are Trinity Hill, actually three, but there are actually three churches, weirdly. There's one at the top, there's one halfway down, which is where I was jumped upon. And then there's this Baptist church and I could see a car park to the Baptist church and there were loads of cars there. And I remember mm. thinking, if I can just get to that Baptist church, then, um, to the, you know, there must be people in the offices and then I can you know, just get some help. Um, but I collapsed face first on the pavement. And according to Johnny, who was watching, he said, you literally went down face first. And um, I thought you were dead. You know, he said you weren't moving. But I, I came round. I managed to drag myself to a brick pillar by this buried car park that I was trying to get to. And as I sat there slumped and actually starting to feel a sense of guilt that I'd left these two wonderful people who'd come to help me. And I thought, oh my God, I've left them with this attacker. You know, they, the attacker was going for me and I've now just run away and left them. And they were, they were holding him back. They were they? holding him back. Well, they had been, but when I looked back up the hill, I realized the attacker was now on his feet and was now walking towards me. It's so, things nightmares are made of. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine the nightmare where you want to run, mm. but you can't run. Mm. That that is exactly what I experienced is that I wanted to run and I couldn't get back to my feet. So the best I could do is put my arm up to try and stop, stop him. And um, he didn't stop him. He drew up in front of me. He actually started punching me in the face. Um, so he started to, you know, attack me again. Yeah. Even further. Um, he, where was he the knife? Have they taken the knife off him? no, no, and this was the very spooky thing. Apparently, when he broke free, mm. he um, he was very calm. He apparently just picked the knife up off the ground, dusted himself down, and walked towards me. Didn't run, just walked. So I'm there on the pavement, seeing him walking like a nightmare, literally like a horror film, mm. Mm. walking towards me. And, um, yeah, um and he bent down in front of me. He's got the, now at this point, the knife's got a broken blade and um, he, he punches me in the face to knock me out. And when I came round, um, he, and listener warning, by the way, this is quite a gruesome detail. So turn the volume down for a couple of seconds. If it's bothered, you know, if, it, if you find these things hard, but he was actually, he then cut me through my wrist while I watched him and he turned the knife to my stomach and then was trying turn the knife to my throat and at the point he held the knife to my neck um an 18 year old lad 
who've been standing in that town centre by those very bus stops I talked about. Um, he's this is somebody been, different now to the yeah, two gentlemen yeah. that helped you initially. So the two gentlemen who helped me initially are now shouting for help. They realised, because they have got a bit injured in the scuffle. One of them had got quite... Tony got injuries to his face and Johnny, unbeknownst to him at first, he's actually got a small cut in his hand where the knife had flown backwards and gone into his hand. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sort of in shock. They're shouting for help. Now, luckily, a man's voice shouting for help, and this isn't on a sexist note, but I do believe that mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. deep man's voice shouting help draws attention. And mm. it did exactly that. So Callum, an 18-year-old lad, was at the bus stops, Heard mm-hmm. the shouts for help. I don't know what made Callum out of everybody who's in... This is Sutton Coldfield Town Centre. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. It's very busy. Mm. Nobody else apart from Callum decides to run. And I still to this day do not know what made Callum as an 18-year-old lad run. And he ran across the ring road. He ran up Trinity Hill. He rounded the corner. He saw the attacker over me. He said he didn't even realise he had a knife. He saw me covered in blood and he just rugby tackled the attacker off me. Um... The attacker then got to his feet again and like a horror movie. Oh my God. Third time. But by complete twist of fate, uh, there happened to be a police foot patrol in St. Caulfield Town Centre. Nothing, never normally happens. We don't normally have a police foot patrol. They were doing a pilot project and they heard the shouts for help as well. And they came running up the hill behind Callum. So they actually, as they rounded the corner, they found the attacker over me with the knife again. And the attacker dropped the knife and they arrested him. Um, but it was nine minutes. The attack lasted nine minutes, nine very long minutes. And in that time I'd been stabbed 24 times. So, uh, oh my God. and I had some very serious life threatening injuries. Um, I wasn't expected to survive. They worked on me, an air ambulance helicopter was mobilized. Yeah. They fully expected me to be in cardiac arrest, that my blood pressure was so low that my heart would have stopped. Um, so as soon as they landed, they airlifted me. So I was on one lung, my right lung had fully collapsed. I was a complete nightmare for them. Uh, they, they don't like to airlift people who are pregnant as it was. I was eight months pregnant. I'm hemorrhaging. They're like, oh my God, you're, you're actually our worst. Heroic, <laughs> heroic people. My goodness. They are. And they made that decision. Um, they made the decision to airlift immediately. They didn't even put a chest drain in because they knew that every second counted, like mm. every second counted. And, and it does, you know, and when people are, you know, victims of stabbings and, or in mm. horrific trauma cases, every second does count, you know, and they airlifted me to a trauma centre. I was taken to theatre for five hours. They operated on me. They delivered my baby during that time. Nobody expected to be alive. I'd actually received three stab wounds to my abdomen and one had gone through the uterus. Um, and I was put into a coma. And the next day... I was brought out of the coma. The first thing I was told was that I had and a your, baby And your daughter. darling baby survived. Yeah. They told me I had a baby daughter. And mm-hmm. I'll never forget the words of the nurse. She said, Natalie, you have a daughter. And she survived. Um, My she, goodness. She was in a different hospital. She was in a different intensive care. Mm-hmm. She was in a different hospital. but um, And she was in a coma. And she was having her little body cooled down um, oh, to help goodness. preserve her brain. Mm-hmm. But um, so it was this incredible happy news to then notice that I had no family around me. Um, and there were some very official looking people who were the police officers. So um, how long you had had the operation and then... So they I had five be... hours in surgery, straight into a mm-hmm. coma. 
The next day they brought me out of the coma. They tell me mm. I've got a daughter. And then the next people to talk to me are three police officers. And mm. you can imagine your head spinning, you know, you, you, you've mm. come around, um, you're very bleary. I was on a huge amount of medication quite clearly for all my injuries. Mm. Um, I've just come out of an induced coma. Uh, I've got no family, so there's nobody standing there waiting, you know, who I recognise. And then you're being questioned by three police officers because they say, we're really sorry, we have to interview you immediately. You know, we because they, they couldn't let me talk to anybody until they'd interviewed me because obviously, you know, that could affect evidence. And, and had account. you, re- were you aware, Natalie, of what had happened? I'd remembered had... fully, yeah, I'd remembered all as a, because I was okay. conscious throughout the stabbing. So I, I knew mm-hmm. what had happened and I explained mm-hmm. it all. Now, the part I did miss out, because everyone always says, because um, the police confirmed at that point, because I'm asking... The shocking, where... the shocking news, was it at yeah, that the point? Yeah, sho- it was horrific. I mean, you know, the, mm. I, I'm asking where is, where's Bobby? Where's Bobby, who's my partner, obviously, at the time, mm. whose baby I'm carrying, whose baby I've just delivered, and, and they, you know, they tell me the horrific news of, you know, they say, well, Babo Raja, which is his correct and full name, um, mm-hmm. is being held at St Caulfield Police Station for the attempt, your attempted murder and the attempted destruction of your baby. And my, my skin was, has, my skin. Yeah, it was, You know, uh, I know when we spoke about this, I was horrified, um, yeah. but it never ceases to, you know, it doesn't lessen this effect that this is what happened, you know, and ever since we had spoken, you know, however long ago it was I never quite I can't get my head around it let alone you yeah and that was the thing um I mean at the scene um when they arrested him and Mm. they had him pinned to the ground and they're asking me my name and address and they clearly must have asked him the same thing and so therefore they've put two and two together that we both gave the same address because we live together so they realized suddenly that we're partners um and i all i can see is his feet so i'm slumped on the pavement they're working on me all this first aid and all i can see is his feet out the corner of my eye i remember always seeing bottom of these trainers because they had him pinned to the pavement next to me and and I don't want to look across, and I didn't want to look across. And, um, and they're asking me, did, did I know who it was? Now, when he'd been walking at me, as I say, you know, he walked towards me after I'd escaped the first time, and then he's walking towards me, and I can't get off the pavement, can't get away. I did catch a glimpse of his face, and it's the first time I'd seen his face. And at first I, I thought, oh, it, oh, it's Bobby. How does he know? And I got excited thinking he'd come to save me, that actually maybe he was one of the men who'd, Save me mm. that I'd got confused mm. and then I saw the knife. But he, in his disguise for himself, um, he wore four tops and under his outer layer, he had a rucksack on his front underneath the top, which has got spare clothes and spare shoes and that padded him out significantly. So from going from a slim guy that I knew, mm. this man's looking very bulky. He also had two pairs of jeans on. He had two pairs of gloves. He had latex gloves and gardening gloves over the top. So everything looks quite big, you know. So mm-hmm. I then went into denial phase in my head, which I've only understood from talking to my psychologist for many years, that I literally mm-hmm. went into denial, that it, this could not be Bobby. This is um, an, a man who looks like him, um, 
Bobby has an Asian background, so I was convinced it must be another Asian man who is far, far fatter than Bobby was and, you know, don't be ridiculous. Now, when he was in front of me and continuing the attack, and he's literally right in front of me, when I had my post-traumatic stress therapy, so this is, you know, sometime on after the attack, I got very angry saying, why am I not looking at him? Why am I not looking at his face? And my psychologist said to me, Natalie, your head took over, as in you probably had worked out that it was him, but in order for you to survive, you could not take on board that information at that point. So the only way you could survive was to block it out. And mm. that's what I successfully did. Now at the scene, when they actually asked me, do you, you know, and they're just about to say, and I'm saying, have they taken him away yet? And she said, they're just taking him now. Do you know who that is, Natalie? And I said, I think it's my partner. I said, but it can't be. Because I was so confident, I was like, it can't be. Mm. And I never forget, she looked at me and she went, it is. And at that point, everything went sheet white. I remember just if literally like the last bit of life draining and everything went bright white. And Cassie, the police officer who was pressing down on my chest and talking to me, I, I, I got really scared. I said, Cassie, I was still talking to her. I was going, I can't see anything. I, I, mm. She became a black outline. I said, all I can see is this outline of you. I can't see you. I can't see anything. I, I, everything's gone white. And she's like, mm. Cassie, stay with me, stay with me. And it was clearly because that moment that somebody had said it was him. So my head then went into survival mode. Mm. I had to live. So I had to almost block it out. So even in the hospital when I came out of my coma and the police are talking to me, I'm still in denial phase that it could possibly be my partner because it's so nothing like the man that I knew, like nothing at all. And when they confirmed it, life just broke because there's no way I could hide from it anymore. You know, I've got three police officers telling me he's under arrest. He's in St. Copper police station. He's being charged with your attempted murder and the attempted child destruction of your baby. And, and I did. Which is up. his baby. It was... Which is his baby and a baby that he pushed for. You know, you, you mustn't forget that this is a child that he really wanted. You know, I had two children. I had thought that my days of bearing children were behind me. You know, I was late 30s and thinking that that's my lot. You know, I've got two beautiful mm. girls. I'm very happy. I, you know, um, but he really wanted a baby and, um, and obviously quite clearly eight months pregnant, he decided to change his mind, you know, but uh, <laughs> it's like, well, there's no, no returns at that point, mate. I'm sorry, but um, yeah. It's, uh, so I have to ask you, um, Natalie, you're absolutely remarkable. You are, I, I am so moved, as you know, from this story, you know, we've spoken before and, I keep saying it and I've spoken to so many people about this and shared this story because this is really a fight of the human spirit to survive. Yeah. And how do you do it? Because, you know, first I want to ask you, because I know what a lot of people will be thinking, were there any signs mm. that this man was capable of this? I mean, it, it, maybe it's a stupid question to ask because at any moment, anybody can flip um some are more predisposed to it than others but were there any inklings at all at any point in your relationship that this man was clearly um not 
not there. Not, <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. Um, no. And this is this is the. I always remember because the police have always said West Midlands police have investigated it. Mm. I've always said it's it. It is one of the bizarrest cases that they'd come across. You know, I remember them saying we will never ever forget this case. Um, there had been no no history of violence in our relationship, no history of abuse. Um, he'd always come across as a very kind man. Um, calm as well you know I mean even from the age of 15 I'd never known him to be in a fight you know with with another lad you know never been in fisticuffs as far as I'm aware um because he wasn't that kind of character he was quite a mellow character or came across as a very mellow character mm. and that was what made it so hard to comprehend um you know I remember somebody I knew um a good friend from back in my school days, and he said, if, if if we lined up 100 people that we knew from our school days, Bobby would have been at the back of the queue in terms of who would do this. Um, so no, there'd been never any warning signs. Um, the only issue we'd ever had in our relationship is, you know, and it's well documented, and it's is that his mother didn't approve of the relationship. Um, she she didn't you know she wanted him to have she knew about the relationship she though. knew about the relationship what i she didn't mm. know which came out i was led to believe he told me that she knew that i was pregnant and that she disapproved of that in mass immensely um but she didn't actually know about the pregnancy um and people say because um you know the press went to town on this whole his muslim mother disapproved and this that the other and no this this isn't this isn't a story of race and this is not, you know, crikey, especially at the moment, you know, we talk about black lives matter because, you know, the racism and the prejudice that's so ingrained in our society, it's big enough and great enough that, you know, at this point, you know, I like to really stand firm and say, well, this isn't a case of race. You know, this wasn't... Nor of religion. This isn't race or religion, hey, mm. you know, just because I wasn't a Pakistani, just because I wasn't a Muslim mm. girl. This was, you know, he, his mother had those beliefs. Did she want him to marry a, a Pakistani Muslim girl? Yes, she did. Why did she? Because, you know what, she came from that culture. She came from that background. She, you know, she was first generation from Pakistan. She went back to the country that she loved many times. She'd been brought here for an arranged marriage with his dad, you know, so she... She'd been in a situation that she didn't necessarily want to come to the UK to start with. Mm. Um, and, and that was her culture. That was her belief, you know. And as much as we, even if we don't agree with them, it, it was how she was. You know, you, 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 you can't hate somebody for the fact that she just wanted something different for her eldest son. Um, the fact is, is that he was the person who made her believe that he was doing everything that she wanted. He was... Was he living with her? So he lived with her up to the point that he... So he lived with her up to the point he moved in with me. So Mm. he did leave the house, and I'm assuming she knew that um, he lived with me because he was obviously no longer living with her. Um, So so she knew of the relationship, and as far as I'm aware, she knew Mm. that we actually lived together because obviously he had lived at home up to the point. But what I didn't know is he was going back there all the time. He was going back to his mother's house almost on a daily basis, apparently sometimes having dinner. So when he came home and said to me, he was working late and oh, I don't feel like food, I ate late at work, it was about probably because he'd actually gone and had dinner with his mum. And instead mm. of just saying that, you know. 
so he's leading like this double life, but the other woman was his mother, really. Um, but he was lying to everyone. He lied to his family as much as he lied to me. He lied to all sorts of people. And what has come out and, you know, something I write about, you say about him being an author and what I write about very much in my book is all the things I found out. So after my attack, I needed to understand why. I needed to understand how somebody who'd kissed me goodbye that morning, how somebody who'd been on the phone to me and said, I love you, somebody who'd never shown violence, had never threatened me, how they could possibly go from that to then murdering mm. me in cold blood. Uh, you know, this wasn't an argument in a kitchen where he grabbed a knife. This was a premeditated, thought out, planned, mm. attempted murder. And um, so I did a lot of homework, I did a lot of, you know, asking questions of different people and discovered that Bobby created a reality to everybody. So whoever met Bobby would have said he was the nicest, kindest, well-spoken, educated man, you know, lovely man. And But actually what Bobby might have told about himself to them might not be the truth. Um, he might have told a different version of facts in order for that person to think that he was the nicest person that they'd met. And he almost created this false reality about himself and... He'd never let anyone into his life. He'd never been married, never um, lived with somebody properly. Mm. And I think he'd managed to keep control of this persona. But then when he started living with me, and then obviously I got pregnant, and he couldn't then share that with his mum because he knew that she would disprove, things started to fall apart. He started to lose control. And we hear this a lot, actually, with domestic violence cases, that when a man feels... Or you know maybe a woman as well because we, you know women commit domestic violence upon men. But when a when an abuser loses control or feels they're losing control, that's when the violence will kick in. And I believe that he felt he was losing control. He felt he got himself into a situation. He told so many lies. Everything was unraveling. He was going to be shown up to be this liar that he was, and all these other things. He'd been, for example, he'd been kicked out of his business. He was a director of his business. He'd been kicked out. I didn't know this. Um, all things that we could have worked around, you know, financially I was stable, but he chose to carry on lying to look like this perfect person. And I believe that his lies were unraveling and he felt he had to get rid of one part of that lie because then he could return to being good Bobby. And he decided to get rid of me. And I believe it was as calculated, as cold, as psychopathic as that, that it was a case of, he had to eliminate one thing and that one thing was me. It's a version, isn't it? There is no logic in madness. No. I mean, but you did something, didn't you, that I can't believe you did this. He ended up in prison, didn't he? Yeah. Yes. But how long, what was the sentence? Um, so he was sentenced um, in the June. Weirdly, the day of sentencing is a day that everybody in the UK will remember. It was the day we voted for Brexit. June the 23rd, 2016, I was actually sat in court all day listening to all the evidence. He pleaded guilty. Um, he pleaded guilty. He pleaded guilty, which meant we went straight to sentencing. Well, we had a different day for sentencing. He pleaded guilty in the May. We got sentencing in the June. But they, on sentencing day, which I didn't know because I'd never been part of this process before, was that they go through all the evidence all the same. So we were still in court for a whole day. It's not just a case mm. of going in and they, they pass a sentence. They still go through a summary of evidence. 
So I'm sitting in court having to listen to all this. And, and when the judge does the summing up, he talks about him being a very dangerous man because he was so calm, he was so together, yet clearly, you know, had these murderous intentions. Um, and he started off at 30 years with the sentence. And, you know, we were hoping for 20 plus years. I'll be totally honest. That's why we hoped it would, it would end. Mm. Um, so he starts off at 30 years. I'm thinking, thank God for that. It's, it's reflected. And then he said, well, because you pleaded guilty. Now, bearing in mind, Bobby was caught with the knife literally in his hands, literally mm. with blood on his hands mm. over me. So by a police officer. And... Um, he said, because you pleaded guilty, you will get the full tariff off, which is a third of the sentence then got taken off because he pleaded guilty. So it went to I can't believe years. that. I just can't believe and, that. Uh, and it went to 20 years. So I'm there saying, how have we got to 20? Hold on. And then the best part, because he had a lot of very affluent friends and lawyers and accountants and stuff, um, who'd written testimonials of what a wonderful man he was, um, he had a further two years taken off his sentence for being of good character. <laughs> How anyone is of good character so, when they try to it, murder it, it, their partner in court? My God, but you know, I don't know. There's no justice. I really believe this in this world. There's no justice. Yeah. So he walked away with an 18-year sentence to serve a minimum of 12. Now, as soon as sentencing day was over, I turned mm -hmm. to the police officers and they said, we know what you're going to say because I've been saying it right from hospital. I said, I'm going to face, I want to speak to him. I want to speak to him. I want to be, I want him to face me and explain to my face what happened. I, I can't, in a way I can, <laughs> but I still can't believe that you did that. Um, yeah. It, but took, I a year. it took a year. Yeah, it took a year mm. of fighting to get into the prison. He agreed to see me, um, but then there's all sorts of red tape. The prison stopped it because they were concerned that if I faced him, it might make him suicidal. And, and this is where my frustration lies as, as the victim, and I needed this for part mm. of my part yeah. of my closure it didn't give yeah. me full closure yeah. but it's part of my part of my journey of healing, healing. Um, yeah and that that seemed to have less importance than his mental health which frustrated me you know it's like I, i'm the victim surely my mental health and well-being should mm. be placed higher but um it wasn't and it took a year and eventually i got in june 2017 i walked through the doors of hmp birmingham with two probation officers with me. I was completely by myself. You're not allowed to take anyone in with you. I didn't go into the visitor suite. They took me to the centre of the prison, to the offender rehab unit. So we were met by two prison guards who walked me through the prison grounds. I've never walked into a prison before this at this point. Um, so I'm there comparing it to Shawshank Redemption. As yes. Through. My goodness. Like, wow, look, they've got those high wire gates. That's just like, I think I literally said that at one point. I was like, oh, it's a bit like Shawshank Redemption. You try to make some normality out of it. <laughs> you are. Totally yeah, a crazy situation, totally isn't great, it? Totally mm. crazy. I'm stood there. Um, I've got this little, I've got this pink folder under my arm with all these questions and bullet points that I want to cover with him. I'm trying to be as... I've put professional head Natalie on that I've got to deal with this in this way. And I'm chatting as we're walking past these recreation yards, these cell blocks, which are, it's a, it's a very dirty Victorian prison, HMP Birmingham. It's, you know, got a lot of very old parts and so I'm going about these horrible buildings, these people shouting through <laughs> from the cell blocks. Is it like you see on, you know, in films? 
Natalie. Do you know what? It was. I mean, I'm walking on the outside, but Hmm. they've got things hanging out the windows, which apparently was bed sheets, which they use to try and pass things from one cell to another. They tie things to the bed sheet and then wang it through. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, you're like, Hmm. this is such a new world. It's dire, you know. To me. Yeah. Yeah. And I was taken to a room in almost, like I say, sort of towards the centre of the prison, um, a very bleak um, concrete building um, that you go upstairs and there's this very small meeting room, this very small window with bars on it. And they said, this is the room that you're going to meet him in. And there's two chairs opposite each other and this very small coffee table there. Rearranged the chair slightly. It had to be the case that the configuration had to be that I was nearest the door. So should mm-hmm. anything happen, they could get me out of the room quickly. Um, was he handcuffed? No. <laughs> a lot of people always say that. So when they bought yeah. him, so I went downstairs because they said, would you like to wait here while we bring him in? Or you mm-hmm. can go downstairs and um, get a cup of tea. We're so British, aren't we? Get a cup of tea. <laughs> get a cup of tea. The, the, and, the, sol- uh, the solver of all problems. It was, you know. Mm. You're, don't worry, you're in the middle of a prison about to meet the man who tried to murder exactly. you. Exactly, yeah. Um, you, you, you go and get a cup of tea, which I did. And, um, and they said, and then we'll bring him in. We'll let you know he's here. And then you can come into the room. And I wanted it to be that way. I wanted him to be sat in the room and waiting for me to walk in rather than me sat there with my heart racing for him to walk in. Uh, okay. I don't know why I wanted him to. So I went and had this cup of tea while they fetched him. And I'll never forget sitting there and trying to make small talk, trying to distract and, and then hearing the door open, uh, you know, and hearing all the keys and hearing them talking to him. And then my heart just, you know, is racing. It's like, you know, sort of the, the rabbit out of the trap sort of thing, um, analogy, a greyhound track, you know, like just whoosh. Because all of a sudden I realised for the first time, I'm actually in a building with him. I'm actually about to face him. Mm. And I did. I spent the entire day at that prison. Um, in total, a day? Like, a day, yeah. So I got there at 9.30. It takes a mm. long time to get through prison security and various things. By the time they actually brought him into the room, it's probably getting on for, at least, for about half ten. We talked for two hours solid. Um, for two hours? Yeah, two hours face-to-face in this room. Um, then I said I needed a break, so I went and had another cup of tea. Um, they offered me food, and I was like, no, if I have food, I probably will throw up, so I'll mm. just stick to the cup of tea. I don't blame um, you. And then I went back up about one o'clock and spent a further two hours till just after three o'clock with him. And, yeah, by the time I walked out of HMP Birmingham, it was quarter to four, um, on a Friday, Weird naturally, Friday. what did you talk about to this? <laughs> For four hours, I can to talk this to this person of that tried to kill you. I know. And- I, I actually set out like a business meeting. If I'm honest, Mimi, it was. Um, I oh. I just had to. I I set four sections. One section was <sighs> factual. So I he was claiming okay. he didn't remember the attack. So I wanted to talk to him about what did he actually remember or what did he claim to remember. And then I was going to take him through it. And I was going to, no matter how much, and, and I went through in really vivid detail, um, even more so than I, I've gone through with you. I literally went through it detail. And I asked him questions. I said, well, where were you? So when I crossed over the road to the top of Trinity Hill, where were you? Where did you start following me from? Because it was things like that that I felt I needed to know. So I'd say things like, well, where was your car? 
you know, where has you come from? Where was, and I, I was this was important. Lord, this was important. Yeah, for me, to it's you, like, it? yeah, for mm. me, it's like if you can imagine having a jigsaw and you're missing yeah. these pieces. And I, I to me, mm -hmm. what I was doing was after the attack, my life was suddenly this broken jigsaw puzzle thrown on the floor. And I was slowly picking up the pieces to create the picture. And yeah. you suddenly realize, well, there's missing, missing pieces here. And he was the holder of those missing pieces and I had to get those from him. So we did that. I, I then also did an emotional part where I talked to him about the impact on me, the impact on my children, the impact on my mom, the impact on my sisters. You know, I, I wanted him to know what his action had caused. So not just what he did to me, that was clear, but actually what he'd done to everyone else around him um, and around me. And um, so we talked about that. Then we had our break. Was he talking, actually, to you? Do you know, he was very... And I had been warned he'd be like this um, by probation who'd spoken... Because they, they, probation have quite a few meetings with him before I got to the point of I meeting. see. And mm -hmm. they warned me. One, he claimed he doesn't remember much. And two, he acts very detached. They said, we have to warn you. He talks in a very detached manner. Now, before I faced him in prison, he'd written to me many times. And um, oh, when okay. he'd written to me, he would say outrageous things such as, you know, I'm so proud of you. You are so beautiful. You are so wonderful. You are the only woman I wanted as my wife. Um, oh, my God. Baby. It's like, hang on, you tried to murder me. Mm. Um, when I wrote back to him and said, you've left me with all these scars, you've done this, you've done that, he wrote back to with the words, um, be proud of your scars. They are your stripes. They show how brave you are. And I'm proud of you. Um, he told me I wasn't perfect in his letters, but I was perfect for him. He told me two or three times, you're not perfect, but you are perfect for me. Um, yeah. It riles and, me. It riles me. Yeah. yeah. It was, <laughs> I, I'd never seen... I'd never considered that there was any manipulation in our relationship when we were together. However... Mm. From those letters and from when I went to face him, the manipulation was very clear, you know, mm. and it was all just the way he was speaking. And um, so when I faced mm -hmm. him, he was very much, he was in denial. He was very, very detached. So when I talked about my injuries, for example, I actually got permission that I could take photos of my injuries in. Mm -hmm. And I took photos of them in and he poured over them. It was like I'd given him some, you know, um, bio you know, biology textbook or something, you know, and he was pouring over these pictures. And not only was he pouring over the pictures, he was also then looking across to me, and I'm only sat, you know, a couple of metres in front of him. Um, and he's actually looking at me to see where the scars were. So when he was looking at the stab wounds on my chest, um, and the, I had 11 in my chest alone, he actually started to look, he looked up from the photos and looked at my chest and sort of looked around to see where the scars were. I... <laughs> Now, this is, this is a man who claimed that he, in his defense, he claimed that he temporarily lost his mind through all the pressure that his mother had put on him and with her disapproval, that he temporarily lost his mind and had, had gone to murder me. For a man who supposedly temporarily lost his mind, any psychologist would say to you, when faced with the person that they'd injured, if he had really lost his mind mm. temporarily, he should have been beside himself. You'd expect a normal reaction would be you'd be crying, you'd be upset, you'd be like, I can't believe I did that to you. I can't believe I did that. <sighs> to be fascinated by the injuries you've This is very, very creepy. Yeah, and to look for the scars that you've created. 
it, people will say to me, did you get the answers that you wanted when you faced him? And mm. I said, not through what he said, but through what he did. So through his mannerisms and almost by what he didn't say. Right. Um, I got a lot more answers that, you know, this, this calculated cold side, this very, very controlled side. And by the afternoon, um, I talked about flashbacks and he said, oh, I get flashbacks. And I don't think he meant, because he'd been so used to trying to empathize with people because that's created the, the nice man that he was. Yeah. He's very empathetic. He said, I get flashbacks. And I instantly passed mm. on it. I looked at him and went, tell me about yours. Tell me about your flashbacks. So at that point, he's cornered now. He has to tell me about his flashbacks. Yeah. He's told me he gets flashbacks. So he tells me, well, I remember your leather jacket. I was wearing a leather jacket on the day. I remember your leather jacket. And so I knew it was you because it was your leather jacket. I remember the knife in my hand. I remember being tackled by some men to the ground. I remember being pulled off you and I remember being arrested and I remember being pinned against the door by the police officers. And I said, hang on a minute. You're telling me that you can remember and have flashbacks right from before the attack to when you were following me through the attack with you holding the knife and being grappled with through to your arrest. So when you say you don't remember the attack at all, actually you remember far more of the attack than you ever claimed to, to which he just put his head down and shook his head because he realized mm. he'd been completely found out for, <laughs> for that lie that yeah. I just completely... Um, but yeah, the whole afternoon session, we talked about um, my daughter. Um, I don't even like to call it our daughter, but um, mm -hmm. we talked about the baby, um, who in my book I call Leah, because I'm not allowed to, obviously, I'm not allowed mm -hmm. to name her publicly, but she's called Leah in my book. Um, mm -hmm. So we talked about Leah, and then we talked about some financial and, and future things, you know, sort of things like, you know, he's not to contact Leah at all until... She's 18. She will have the decision at 18 as to whether she wishes to know who he is, you know, know, you know, meet him, which I hope to God she never does, but she shall be an adult and I'll support her with what she needs to do for her own journey and her own healing. Um, and, but, Natalie, yeah. did you want revenge? Do you know... Um, I have I, to ask I you. Thought, no, I, I look at him and... Because people say, do you hate him? And mm. I hate the act he did. I despise the person that he's turned out to be, who's completely manipulative. Um, I'm more disgusted with him. And I think with that disgust, all I want is, I almost don't care what happens in his life as long as he stays away from me and my daughter. And that's my biggest thing is he's not to come near my daughter because you know it's that mother protection you know yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's the it's the wolf <laughs> the she wolf in me is like yeah come, in, come near my daughter and you will see revenge because I, I do not come near my daughter you know this that is my daughter you know she's she's so precious and um and you tried to murder her um and but I believe karma will hopefully deal with things in whichever way karma deals with things. But I, um, I have no interest in, um, in being any part of my thoughts and life in that way. I just want 
to keep my my youngest protected from him for the rest of her life and that's the biggest thing for me is that you know just need him to stay away from her and if that means as you know um moving country staying mm. away, whatever i, I would yeah. do you know if i have to protect her that way I, I what it takes well, yeah, because, it yeah you know she has to be safe and um you know, and there's, and there's a whole journey with her still to go. She knows that mommy was hurt the day she was born. She knows that mommy was hurt very badly. She knows that we were airlifted because I do a lot of fundraising for Midlands Air Ambulance Charity. Mm-hmm. They've got a very distinct red helicopter, um, a bit like the London one being red. I do stuff with London Air Ambulance too, an incredible service. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and so she knows the red helicopter is attached to mommy. She knows that she was in mommy's tummy when we went in the red helicopter and that mommy just you know, mommy does crazy things to raise money for the air ambulance. Um, She knows now that I knew the person who hurt me, but I didn't know them when the attack was happening. As in, I didn't know it was them because they were chasing the flies. She still doesn't know the biological link to that person. Um, There's Mm -hmm. no way of hiding it from her. People sort of said, well, what do you tell them? Like, well, I've got no choice. I mean, we live in a digital world, you know, Mm. I, I was named in the papers, online, uh, you know, it hit news. Because you're everywhere, across, aren't you? You've yeah, been across it, it, the media and... Yeah, know, and even before I did... A, exactly, and before I did a single interview, you know, the, mm. the, the photos of me right from... Uh, I think I was named... The attack happened on a Friday, and by the Monday, they named me, and they, mm. the, the press had taken photos from my social media, so photos of me everywhere, photos of him everywhere. I always knew there was no chance of not telling her. At the end of the day as well, her two older sisters were 10 and 6 when it happened. They're very aware of what happened. I can't tell them to lie to their sister, for the, you know, mm. because that, that's them perpetuating his legacy of lying and covering up, you know. Yeah. She, I always know that she's had to know. She's, she's four years old now. She starts school in September. And, um, and it, it's tough because, you, you, you know, you do worry that when she gets to school age and if people find out, you know, sort of the story, it doesn't take a lot for her to, when she eventually gets to the stage of being able to Google things that she puts in mommy's name, it's going to be there. But, um, so I do have to tell her soon. I've been advised by child psychologists. I've had a lot of advice about it to tell her early on. Mm -hmm. Earlier she knows as horrible as this sounds, it becomes her normality a horrible normality, but it becomes her normality, mm. um, which is why we sort of talk openly about the fact that mummy was hurt. So she gets used to that idea that something bad happened the day that she was born. Um, but it's all that reassurance to her that we're safe now. We're both well, we're both fine. Um, she has been left with a degree of brain injury. Um, okay. She's very starved of oxygen when she was inside mm-hmm. because I'd lost so much blood. When they delivered her, she was expected to actually be dead on delivery. Um, the knife missed her by two millimeters. It went through the uterus and it missed her by two millimeters. Um, she had to be resuscitated when she was delivered. It took five minutes to resuscitate her. Um, and so she was very severely oxygen starved. Um, I was told to prepare myself that she could be cerebral palsy, um, you know, or another 
significant mm. brain injury. Um, touch wood. I'm finding some wood in my office where I'm sat. Um, there's not mm-hmm. much. <laughs> well, I don't think the desk from IKEA counts as wood. Um, but um, <laughs> to look elsewhere. <laughs> but I start buying cheap furniture. And um, but you know, it, she she's been amazing. She has defied every single odd so far. She had she had a speech delay. She still does have a speech delay. Um, when she starts school, that's when we'll really know what learning difficulties, if any, but I think there will unfortunately be some, but we'll know what we're dealing with when she gets to school. So the year ahead is going to be very telling for us. I think we're going to have yes things to face that I haven't had to face up to this point, but school mm-hmm. will be a different ball game. The key thing is, is she's a very happy girl. She's a very loving girl. She's funny as anything. She's really funny. She's beautiful. Um, and she's a joy to all of us. You know, she's, she's an absolute joy to me, to her sisters who adore her. You know, my mum, she's very close to her nanny. My mum was very supportive after the attack. My mum's an incredible woman mm-hmm. and, um, she loves her nanny to pieces. And so she's got a great family unit around her and we'll, we'll all be there to support her. So... You two are the two musketeers. <laughs> exactly. Aren't you? Exactly. You're so, the two musketeers. What a story. Yeah. Natalie, I, I, I stand really in awe for your, you know, uh, truly I do because your huge heart to move on with life. And that's what I want to move on to now because... We've got, there is a happy ending, isn't there? It's not all upset because you have moved on in leaps and bounds and you have written a book called Still Standing, haven't you? That's available on Amazon and where else is it available? Waterstones, WH Smith's mm-hmm. online. Um, occasionally in a supermarket, get very excited. I have friends who send me photos going, Natalie, it's in, it's in Asda, it's in Tesco. It's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, get so, I get very excited by these things. It's in the works. It was in the uh, top 10 of the works. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the best. It's in the top list, isn't it? It has been. and it, it, yeah. It's been incredible still standing. It was launched last oh. June, um, written completely by myself um which i know sounds an odd thing because i assume that's what everybody did but then i found there's lots of people who have ghostwriters and i was like damn it yes yes i spent hours in front of my computer what the heck and um i wrote it all myself um when you read it, it's quite a conversational book so it's quite easy to read it's i can chatting but um i had a great publisher that i'd been introduced to by the very late and lovely Willie Thorne who just passed away very recently and I was very saddened by Willie Thorne's passing Willie Thorne the former snooker player Mm -hmm. a very random introduction but he heard me speak at an event for Midlands Air Ambulance he always promised to keep in touch he he knew that I was writing a book when I met him I sold him I was writing a book and he stayed true to his words lots of people promise to help you um Mm. and say oh I'll stay in touch and I've met a few I've been very fortunate to meet various celebrity people and they might say oh you know I'll I'll pass you on to this or I'll let my agent know or I'll pass Mm -hmm. this on Willie Thorne stuck to his word and he phoned me he he messaged me through Twitter and said how's that book going Natalie and I said it's nearly finished have you got a publisher no I haven't and he said well actually my best mate John Virgo the other um, 
very famous snooker player. Yeah. Um, his wife works for a publishing house. Would you like her to give you some advice, Rosie Virgo? And I said, that would be amazing to get some advice. And true to his word, within literally about 15 minutes, Rosie Virgo was on the phone to me. She asked me to send some chapters through. She read it. She was like, this is incredible. Please come to London and have a chat with us. And that's how I got my book deal. So it's very surreal um, and a very kind heart of Willie Thorne um, to have even kept that connection. And so the book became a reality and it's now published in six countries. It's just been translated to Estonian, which is incredible. My goodness. Yeah, which I thought was great. But uh, you've done so well after, <laughs> you know, after, there has to be, you know, there has to be light at the end of this. And I know that you do so many things. You do TEDx talks, you um, are on the TV, you've appeared on <laughs> all sorts of things like This Morning and Lorraine and, you know, and you are a motivational speaker as well as being an activist, isn't it? Yeah. So I do motivational speaking and that went really nice hand in hand with the book. And then somebody invited me to do a TEDx. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not sure I'm ready for TEDx because it's such a big stage. Mm -hmm. And I did a, a TEDx women's event, which was really lovely. It was in December. They dedicate the month across the world, um, TEDx. Mm -hmm do a women's month about women and strong stories and I was part of that very honored to be part of that so I did that and that's that's on YouTube people can see that and play that out and um, it's called still standing um quite the rest of it but um but yeah you can it it's all you know sort of making you know right here right now is the, the mm -hmm. sense of it that mm -hmm. we shouldn't wait you know I, I changed my life in a very positive way after the attack I made that choice to leave the pharmaceutical industry which was being very good to me for many years but I knew it wasn't where my heart fully was I started doing the speaking I work in knife crime as you said about the activists I'm very passionate about youth violence knife mm -hmm. crime and reducing that because it's I find it heartbreaking that so many of our young people feel the need to carry a knife and I don't think they realize the true consequence and they mm -hmm. get that when I talk to them about what the real consequences are I talk about positive empowerment that no matter what this is true for adults and young people alike. We always have to look, and it's a bit very true with the COVID situation. We cannot control what's going on around us at the moment. And mm. lives have been massively impacted. There's been some very tragic circumstances. People have lost people. Um, people have lost their businesses. And, you know, it's, it's such a hard time. It's, it's a horrifically hard time. It's a world trauma. Yeah. Um, there has to be a degree of acceptance, which is very hard that, we can't control it, um, but we can all control how we respond. And, and that's what I had to do after my attack is I had to accept that I was in this hell hole and it was a hell hole. You know, there was press writing and speculating why he'd done the attack and people talking and mm. my complete As always. Trust, yeah, and my complete mm. trust and devotion completely shattered, my self-worth very much knocked mm. to the ground. Um, but I wasn't going to be beaten. As you said, you know, before at the beginning of this, you said, I and I was determined I wasn't going to be beaten. I was a mum of three. My children genuinely were my inspiration. They needed their mum to be strong. And I loved what you said earlier. You said sometimes just surviving and living another day is, mm. is a win in itself. You know, it's something to celebrate. And that's how I started, you know, just getting through each day, getting through each week, 
and then being kind to yourself and then thinking, well, what would I really like to do? And, and maybe this time in COVID where we have time to sit down and reflect and we don't know how long this is going to be, you know, we, we don't know how long the effects of this will last. And, but this is take this time to think, well, actually life is precious. Life is short. And am I doing everything I genuinely want to do? And yes, we all have bills to pay, but are there other ways that we can get around this? We might have all had to face adapting our financial circumstances mm. anyway at the moment. And actually, can we take this time to really check in with are we doing what we want to do? And if not, what can we do to get there? And Or it might be that there's a, a new passion that we want to take up and that doesn't mean everyone has to learn a different language. I think that's crazy that everyone <laughs> set themselves on yes. these ridiculous things of, oh, I'm yes. going to learn this, that, the other. But um, but just have a reflect, you know, is there anything else that we'd want to be doing? And yeah. and that's what I did. And I, I set myself different goals. I knew that I wanted to write a book. I found a list the other day. Uh, it's weird. Uh-huh. I found a list in my desk on, in this notebook I found. And I read through it. And at the top of that list was write a book. And I, I consider myself to be a scientist. I said science at university. Mm. I've been told my English teacher that I was basically crap. English was her words. Um, not quite that harsh, but she, at the grammar school, she basically told me not to bother thinking about it further than GCSE. And I'd be lucky to get through that. Um, and think, well, I'm a published author now. You know, and actually the fact that I didn't know what uh, – conjugated verbies or whatever didn't really matter mm. because I still managed to write a book and my editor said that grammatically it was actually quite all right and they didn't have to do too much work on it <laughs> um which is amazing to myself um but we can do so much more than we probably give ourselves credit I, I, I believe that we are far more resilient beings than we ever give ourselves credit we are far yeah. more capable and that was kind of the thoughts and feelings behind the title of still standing which i did blatantly rip off sir elton john's song um it did yes. from i'm still standing <laughs> i was listening to mm. i'm still standing i thought the lyrics were so pertinent mm. um that's where the title did come from but it, it, it's a good message it's saying i am still standing um despite being knocked down severely and and we can all be still standing. No matter what happens for us in life, there is a way forward. I do a lot of fundraising. That's helped me. Um, it's helped yeah. charities, obviously. But it has also been helped me because it's a, it does make you feel good when you get involved in that. And through that, I met my partner. And I'm now with a new partner, which nobody thought could be possible. Well, congratulations. I know. Well, I certainly didn't think it could be possible. I thought... I think that's you know. beautiful. What a beautiful thing. <laughs> You I know, thought I was boxed love. Yes, it is. Find Miraculous. Love. Through, through the fundraising side, I met Simon. Mm. And um, this, this is the morning. Um, we've already been on it. We're doing a big charity walk soon. And we've been on mm-hmm. a practice walk together. And that's lovely because we get to do stuff like that together. Um, but, yeah, it, people say to me, well, how can you trust again? Um, mm. How could... How, and of course it's difficult. Of course we're not going to say, and he understands that there's going to be times that I might question things a little bit more or I might go quiet. But if I didn't allow myself to love again, you know, I'm over four years on from the attack, but if I didn't allow myself to love again, Bobby would have won. Bobby would have, he's the one in the prison cell, not me. And mm. if I curled up and did nothing with my life, he would have defeated me. And he's not going to defeat me and he never will defeat me. And Mm. living my life and allowing somebody else into my life, that that's the best way of living, 
you know, is it doesn't mean that I have to have a man. I'm not a woman who has to be, you know, and I get very annoyed where people are like, oh, is it just, you know, all these women that just need a man. It's not a case where I just need a man, but I appreciate that having a partner does make me happy and mm-hmm. it's something that mm-hmm. I like and enjoy. And, and I'm, I'm embracing that. I got together with Simon just, uh, well, we started, we met about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, but we started as a couple May, beginning of May last year, May. And so I'd just gone past the three year mark. I'd had a lot of therapy. So I was in the right place mentally. You were ready for it. Yeah, I was ready for it. And, Mm. um, you know, and, and it's great. And, and I think I view things very differently. And it's weird because Simon says, oh, I wish we'd met earlier in your life. And I said, you know what? I do, but at the same time, maybe it wouldn't have worked because I think I'm a different person and I think Simon and I value so much the same. He's, you know, a very lovely man and he's a very strong man, which is good, you know, a strong mentally, which I need, especially with my <laughs> Latino strong spirit. But, um, yeah. but, you know, I said, actually, I think that I'm now to a degree, a different person. And that means you've probably got the better person overall, you know, and I was very career driven. And although I'm still very career driven, I learned to appreciate far more everything around me, family wise, relationships and bonds after the attack. Um, Mm. Instead of being this driving on and on with my career, I kind of sort of stepped back and I realized appreciating more the really important things, which is, human relationships and um and therefore like i say doing things like the charity work and realizing just to be kinder generally in the world <laughs> so not that i was a complete cow. i wasn't a complete cow beforehand <laughs> i was thinking i can't but... imagine that you ever were but, <laughs> but... you're an extraordinary lady and <laughs> i really i have no words you know and it reminds me of You know that um, famous quote by Nelson Mandela? I don't exactly know how it goes, but it's, he said that when he walked, you know, when he was released out of prison, that he was walking to his freedom and that he knew that if he didn't leave this hatred behind, actually he'd still be in prison. And I think this is a credit to you, Natalie, because you have left it behind and you set yourself free. Yeah, and it is true. If you stay full of, you know, full of hate, and mm. um, the only person it ultimately will destroy is yourself. And yeah. um, and like I say, that's why I can hate the act that he did. And there's mm. a wonderful lady that I know that you've spoken to in, before, Madeline Black. And yes, yes. What Madeline, a lovely lady she is incred- as well. Incredible mm. woman, uh, yes. Madeline is. And, and Madeline's part of the Forgiveness Project. And it's very much about, she can hate the act, you know, she was raped at a young age and um, horrific, you know, that she went mm. through. And she can hate the act, but hating the people who did it will ultimately destroy yourself and you know and it's a similar thing I hate what he did I despise mm. the person that he's turned out to be as far as what he did but yeah. if I have this active hatred and everything else um you know I mean I, I will still have images of him in a photo album on my computer because 
you know, people go, well, surely you've just destroyed every single photo of him. And it's like, well, for a start, they're all in the media, so that would be pointless. Um, but I said, well, no, because when Leah grows up, you know, she 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 might be she, she's going to want to know what he looks mm. like she's going to want to know where where she's come from and at the end of the day she was conceived in love you know she was conceived in a loving relationship and it's very important that my daughter knows that and understands that and she will know that he did a very bad thing and that he's a person i believe is mental health illness that's mm. very severe um but you know if if you vent that hate, that hate would only go into my daughter and that would go into my daughter and eat away at her. And, um, you know, 50% genetically part of him and that could affect her in all sorts of ways. Um, mm. and I, and I won't perpetuate that. And, um, I, I just don't want him to ever be part of our lives ever in any shape or form ever again. But, God willing, he won't be. And, you know, God <laughs> willing, a bright future for you all. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I wish you all the best and a beautiful life. And I know that you have so much love, Natalie, and there is no room for hate. Because no. if we're so busy hating, we, we are tied to that person. So you know, you're free now, you can love and you can spread that love of yours and that humongous heart of yours <laughs> to helping other people now. And as we come to the end of the show, I want to ask you what got you through that you can give, you know, a few sentences to inspire other people that feel, especially in these times, uh, low and hopeless what's your advice I think it's working out your true value so what is your what is the most important thing to you um, and what is it that you value the most you know what is it that's going to make you feel good now the thing I valued the most was my my children and the other thing that I knew that I valued the most was feeling like I could help and support other people, which is why I developed my life that way. And I think if people can understand what is it, if you were going to write down and reflect in your life, what, what moments have made you feel good and what is it about those moments that made you feel good? Mm. You might start to understand what, what lights that little spark for you. So even in those lowest moments, you could think, well, actually that made me feel good. Okay. Well, why did that make me feel good? Or, you know, if I'm with this person or these people, you know, then I feel really good. Whatever it is that you really value and that gives you that good feeling, understand that and build that into your life moving forwards and make that a bigger part of your life. And I think when you know that you understand these things that make you smile and drive forwards, you know, it, it, it's how it helps you create a new life. And that's what it did for me. You know, I, I knew what, what made me smile, what made me grow drive forwards and my children made me smile and helped me push on and build myself back up helping other people something I wanted to do which is where I did the charity work and continue to and do my work now in youth violence and gave up a very lucrative career in order to do that um, because that's yeah. what gives me my spark and even when I have dark and hard times and COVID has given me some very hard times you know with a fledgling business mm -hmm. um, but I know deep down what I'm wanting to do it for. And if you 
got that true value inside you and true gold, I think you can understand, you can achieve anything. Precious advice. Thank you, Natalie. You know, um, incredible story. You're an incredible lady. And, you know, uh, I'm sure the listeners out there will be truly moved by this story as much as I have been. And where do you go from here? Only to better places and brighter things and a brighter future for you and your family. Yeah, I think for everybody out there, I think, you know, just don't, don't live a life where you're going through the motions. And I know to a degree life is like that, you know, life has routine, but make sure you have that spark and that's something special. And life is exceptionally, exceptionally precious. We've all learned that lesson recently, even more so, mm. but it is exceptionally precious. And don't be that if you left the planet, God forbid, you know, mm. that, that you weren't doing something that you really enjoyed because it, it's anything else. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it. You must enjoy, you must enjoy life. One life. Yes, very much. One life. Now, Natalie, if somebody uh, would like to contact you and find out more about your story and your book, where can they do that? The best place is to go to my website, which is mm-hmm. Q Inspire. Um, so the letter Q and inspire qinspire.co.uk and on there in the media gallery they'll get links to the TEDx there's links to the different interviews that you've mentioned and there's a bit about the book Um, there'll be a link there as well if you put Amazon for still standing um, but I say other booksellers Um, but yeah Twitter um, you can find me on Twitter, you can find me on Instagram, you know, Nat C.K. Rosh, and mm-hmm. on Facebook. Um, the great thing about my surname, if you can find, look it up, I'm not <laughs> relatively easy to find with that, but yeah, Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram, please do follow and connect. It'd be lovely, um, lovely to hear from you. I'm even on LinkedIn through my business, but um, qinspire.co.uk will give you links to all those videos and interviews. And business. the book is on Amazon. And it's on Amazon and Waterstones mm-hmm. and Smith, WH Smith and other places. But yeah, um, Amazon's always the easiest link that comes up if you put in still standing Natalie. Mm-hmm. Even if you just put Natalie, you don't even have to put my surname. I think it's still standing. It will Natalie's. come up. It will come up. And you will see it there. There's a photo on the front that's actually of me holding Leah, which bizarrely I took as a selfie when she was two months old, sat on the sofa. I don't know what, I just took a selfie and it's ended up now as the cover photo. It's a very poignant moment of just me and her together, actually alone in the lounge when I took it and I just kissed her. A beautiful photograph. Yeah, it's just one of those moments, you know, Mm. of that sort of, we're together and it's was, it was still so very, very hard at that point. And, um, but we were there together and bonded. So, yeah. And you're still standing, which is Absolutely. the main thing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you again, Natalie. Please come again, come again and um, share with us all new stories and things that you're doing. And um, I wish you really, truly from my heart, all the very best. Thank you. Thank you so much for 
having me it's been wonderful to get to know you and we will obviously keep in touch and yes i listening to this please do connect because it's always lovely to hear new people so yeah all right then thank you natalie look after yourself and that little darling of yours and your <laughs> other darlings of course yes. and um stay in touch i will do absolutely oh. thank you okay then take care take care okay. bye 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 Natalie K. Roche, what an extraordinarily brave lady. And what a story of courage. And it just shows us that we can never, ever give up hope. Thank you so much for joining me today. I wish you beautiful moments. And until next time, look after yourselves and lots of love. Thank you for listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life, brought to you by your host, Mimi Novik. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and see you in the next episode. For more information about Mimi Novik and her books, music, and inspirational work, take a look at her website, www.miminovic.co.uk.